Hi, I'm Dan Permack, and welcome to Axios Recap, brought to you by Comcast. Today is Wednesday, March 10th, and we're looking back at this same week last year, the week that America changed. This is our COVID-19 Decision Maker series, conversations about some of the most consequential decisions made this week last year. Today, we look at the decision to suspend the NBA's season with NBA Commissioner Adam Silver. On the Wednesday night of that week in 2020, six NBA games were scheduled to be played, but only four tipped off. The inflection point was that the league had just had its first player test positive, Utah Jazz Center Rudy Gobert. One of the games that did get played was in Dallas, where Mavericks owner Mark Cuban was sitting courtside when he got word that the season was suspended, and television cameras caught his utter disbelief at the news in a video that quickly went viral. There wouldn't be another NBA game played for five months when the league opened its so-called bubble in Disney World. Adam Silver joins us with his story of that day, how his decision traveled through the league, and all that led up to a moment that many in the U.S. now describe as when COVID became real to them. That conversation in 15 seconds. Adam, how did you reach the decision to suspend the season? I began to take it seriously in mid-January because of our presence in China. We have about 200 people in Beijing and Shanghai. And the head of our China office said, I don't know what you're reading in the U.S. media, but we're, it looks like we're going to be closing down our office soon. And then in terms of my ongoing awareness, I was at a um, Brooklyn Nets game at Barclays Arena in late January, actually for a Chinese New Year celebration. And I ran into a, a doctor named David Ho, who's now with Columbia University. He's a world-renowned virus expert who I had originally met when I first joined the NBA in the early 90s. He was someone that David Stern had brought in to help us better understand HIV and AIDS around uh, Magic Johnson's diagnosis. So he was there at this Brooklyn Nets game just as a guest. And we were at a reception and we were sitting and talking. And I, I said, Dr. Ho, um, you know, I know our China offices have been shut down. Are you focused on uh, this new coronavirus? And he said, yes, absolutely. In fact, we're moving all of our attention to this. And it wasn't as if Dr. Ho was saying to me, watch out, you know, this could shut down the NBA. But certainly he was saying he was concerned. I mean, it wasn't concern at the level of alarm. But he said it was concern. And this was somebody who had studied SARS, H1N1. I called him shortly thereafter and said, would you mind working as an advisor to us in the same way you had around HIV and AIDS in the 90s? And he said, absolutely. And so we began talking on a regular basis. Then we had our all-star game in mid-February in Chicago. And I remember we have media partners in China and in Asia and we began to receive notification from them that they were going to be unable to travel. And not because of U.S. travel restrictions, but because from travel restrictions in their own region that they couldn't come to the United States because of this coronavirus. And at Dr. Ho's recommendation, we began to send a series of memos out to our teams in essentially mid to late February, suggesting they put in place certain protocols focused on cleanliness, um, in, in their locker rooms. We started to talk about whether there were modifications we potentially should be making to our arenas. And then in late February, again at Dr. Ho's suggestion, we asked all of our 30 teams 
to make an arrangement with a local lab so that they would be in a position to get that player tested. Certainly we were listening to public health authorities. We had our own group of experts that we were relying on. Incidentally, the now Surgeon General, Vivek Murthy, who was also the Surgeon General under President Obama, I had met him then, and he's someone I'd just become friendly with. And so, I, you know, informally I was checking in with him. Then in March, we began testing some players. I mean, generally if a player had it, certainly if the player had a fever, player had a sore throat, player had aches and pains, the kinds of things traditionally associated with the flu. And then sure enough, on March 11th, the first positive COVID case in the NBA. In a way, coincidentally or not, on that very day, earlier in the day, I had scheduled a meeting um, that took place at the NBA offices with Michelle Roberts, who's the executive director of our Players Association. And one of the discussions we had was, should we be taking a break in the season? I remember at the time, people were using the term super spreader, and we were thinking it could potentially apply to our player. These were people for a living who, on average, play three and a half games a week. So they go from city to city. They're in front of 19,000 people. Even when they're not playing games, often they go to events where hundreds if not thousands of people are congregating around them. They're constantly signing autographs or taking selfies. The term social distancing, I don't think was part of my vocabulary back then, but we were certainly aware that our, our players were in close proximity to lots of people and therefore could potentially act as spreaders. That was actually the early afternoon. And that was followed by a previously scheduled meeting with all 30 of our teams, a, a conference call with the what we call the governors, the, the principal owner of the 30 teams. One jurisdiction that I'm aware of, Santa Clara, California, they had announced a limitation on fans in the arena so that it was at least a thought that maybe not that we're going to be required to shut down, but there, there may be ordinances that reduce the number of fans we can have in our arenas. So we had that general discussion among our teams on that afternoon. At about 7.45 p.m. Eastern time on the night of March 11th, I was on my way home from the office in New York City, I'm in a car for what is roughly a 15 minute drive. And I received a call from the general counsel of the NBA, Rudy Gobert has tested positive and the game is scheduled to tip in 15 minutes. And Rudy Gobert had already been isolated from the team, the Utah Jazz, because he had these symptoms. So I will say it wasn't immediately obvious that therefore we should be calling the game. Nobody else had called off any other events. People had said maybe you should be reducing the number of fans, but nobody had said to us, you should, you should shut down your league. But we realized in that moment that given the game was scheduled to tip in 15 minutes, and in fact, both teams, the Oklahoma City Thunder, who they were playing in the Utah Jazz, had already taken the floor to warm up for that night's game. We needed to make an immediate decision. The immediate decision was, let's send both teams back to the locker room. We also recognized that we had 19,000 people in that arena. And so part of the decision was, what, what do we tell those people? There wasn't a lot of information around the terms of this virus, like meaning if one person had it in a building, did that mean it would spread to everyone? Um, how quickly did it spread? How exactly did it spread? And um, we all recall nobody was suggesting that everyone wear masks at that point. And so 
We then conferred with the Oklahoma City Health Authorities. The first question was, have we been ordered to shut down? And the answer was that order hasn't come yet. But I think it was in that moment that I realized we didn't have any more time to deliberate. At that point, I know I had talked directly to the, the principal owner of the Oklahoma City Thunder, and he agreed with me. And I said, we're going we're gonna, to um, cancel tonight's game. And that was, that was the initial decision. And the immediacy of it was that was a, a local decision. There were several other games in progress, and one decision we had to make, do we take the players off the floor mid-game in those other games? We were concerned it could cause some panic. We had full arenas and several games that were ongoing. So we made that decision, let those games continue and end. And separately, we had one game at that point, that evening, that hadn't started yet, and that was the New Orleans Pelicans were in Sacramento. And at first, it wasn't obvious to me that that game needed to be canceled. The thought was, well, even if we're going to suspend the season, maybe we should just let that game happen because the fans were already in their seats in the arena. We then learned, you know, a, a, a term that I'm sure I was not familiar with at the time, but we began our version of contact tracing. We learned that one of the NBA referees who was working that Kings game that night had refereed at a Utah Jazz game earlier in the week, the team that Rudy Gobert plays for. So we then made that decision. We were going to call that game as well. And so to me, once we had canceled those two games, I bought myself a little bit of time in terms of what we were now going to do. It then became clear to me, you know, we'd been thinking at the league office about this virus from late January on. We needed to suspend the season. So at that point, that evening, we didn't have time to have a board meeting, but that, you know, it was within my authority to say, we are hereby suspending operations in the, in, in the entire NBA. I will say, if you would ask me then how long a period that would have been, I think I was, I was thinking at the, at the outset, we would probably be looking at a 30-day period in which we would revise all our protocols and then we'd be back to operations. I think the WHO that very day had declared this a pandemic. It, it, I, I didn't have a sense that this was about to shut down our entire economy and that a, a year later, we would have lost a half a million Americans to this disease. I, I was dealing with the immediacy of the, the, the data I had that was impacting our league. And I didn't have time to put it into a broader context. Adam, some of the things the NBA did to react to COVID got some heavy press scrutiny. Can you talk about that a little bit? We began testing several of our teams, those that, again, based on our version of contact tracing, had had dealings with the Utah Jazz within essentially the last five days or so. And there was enormous then pushback in the public that we were using needed COVID tests on these young, healthy players who were otherwise asymptomatic. And I think we got caught. I mean, we, of course, recognized that to the extent that there were so few tests available in the country at that point, and they were needed for frontline workers, of course, they should have them. But I was dealing with a lot of 
nervous players who, again, not knowing how lethal this disease could be, very little data then on the impact on age and comorbidities and all the things that we sort of all talk about now, that we were forced to just stop that testing, understandably. But I say there was enormous anxiety in the NBA community at that time. How many people do you think were impacted by the decision you made on March 11th? When you roll up the team staffs together with the arena workers, we were having a direct impact on the livelihoods of 55,000 people. On a global basis, 1.9 billion people connect with the NBA in some way, a, a number around one out of four people on the planet. How do you think the decision played a role in uh, kind of reshaping our society? It's so hard for me to put it in context. I've certainly watched a fair amount of that programming afterwards where people talked about the impact of the NBA shutting down. Maybe it speaks to the bigness around this league, how much focus there is on our teams and our players. It's, it's like all politics are local. You're just thinking about the immediate impact on yourself and the people around you. When I look at those timelines and there it is, the NBA on March 11th, I, I, you know, it, it, it always it takes me a minute to absorb that. Adam Silver, Commissioner of the NBA, thank you so much for joining us. Great. Good to see you again, Dan. Take care. In a moment, we'll revisit this date in 2020 when Italy went into nationwide lockdown and the U.S. designated its first local lockdown, a containment area just north of New York City. Welcome back. As we reflect on how this one week in March changed our lives, I want to revisit two major developments from March 10th, 2020. That was the day that Italy went into a nationwide lockdown. Italy's coronavirus epidemic, already the second most deadly after China, has taken another dramatic turn. All of Italy, a country of 60 million people, is now effectively a red zone. È per questo che sto per firmare un provvedimento che possiamo sintetizzare con l'espressione io resto a casa. In the US, instances of community spread were racking up. Here's Governor Andrew Cuomo from that afternoon. New Rochelle at this point is probably the largest cluster in the United States of these cases. And uh, it is a significant issue for us. Italy's targeted lockdown approach hadn't worked to contain the virus to the northern part of the country. But in the U.S., a similar strategy was being floated to contain the virus to New Rochelle, just north of New York City. I have accepted the plan, uh, which will deal with this containment area. Containment area. That's another new term that had just entered the public consciousness. All the while, there was still very little known about how the virus was transmitted. We're also going to use the National Guard in the containment area uh, to deliver food to uh, homes, to help with the cleaning of public spaces. There is a debate about how long the virus can live on hard surfaces. But a case from New Rochelle had already made its way to New York City. On March 1st, 2020, a lawyer from New Rochelle who had contracted COVID was taken to New York Presbyterian Hospital for treatment. It became the city's first known case. On tomorrow's episode, we'll hear from New York Presbyterian CEO, Dr. Stephen Corwin, about his efforts to prepare his hospital system for a surge he knew was coming. At that point, we recognized there was community spread. And that was a sort of horrifying moment because then you realize that this, is, this virus is widespread. 
big thanks for listening and to the team behind this series. This episode was produced by Naomi Shaven, Tim Shovers, Amy Padula, Alice Wilder, and Alex Sugiora. Research and fact-checking by Oriana Gonzalez. Dan Bobkoff is our executive producer. Have a great national blueberry popover day, and we'll be back tomorrow with another Axios Recap.